This is Building Michigan, sponsored by Operating Engineers 324. To be a part of Building Michigan's infrastructure, visit OE324.org. Good evening. On tonight's edition of Building Michigan, we visit with Operating Engineers 324. They are the workers operating and fixing the heavy machinery, cranes, bulldozers, excavators, and more that are rebuilding Michigan's infrastructure. They also represent stationary engineers who keep complex boiler and HVAC systems running, as well as many workers in essential industries like healthcare, education, and building maintenance. Tonight's show is about opportunities. We start out with John Hartwell, Operating Engineers 324 Career and Outreach Representative. He's going to talk about the upcoming Michigan Construction Career Days, as well as other opportunities for youth around Michigan to learn about opportunities in the skilled trades. We'll also talk to Matt Kloss, Training Director of OE324's Stationary Engineer School, about what they've been working on and what exciting classes they have upcoming and who they are open to. Kathy Harris has spent her career helping affect positive change through greater opportunities in Grand Rapids. Today, she includes heading up the Grand Rapids chapter of the A. Philip Randolph Institute among her many roles, and she's working to bring pre-apprenticeship opportunities to Grand Rapids with the help of OE324 and the local communities. And finally, we'll hear from OE324 business representative Chris Phillips about Detroit and the pressing need to make sure city-selected contractors are held to responsible standards. Stay tuned for Building Michigan only on News Talk 760 WJR. Welcome to WJR's Building Michigan Show. I'm Ken Rogalski. We kick off this evening's program with Mr. John Artwell from Operating Engineers 324's Career and Outreach Representative. John, so good to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Ken. Let's start first by talking about COVID. How has it impacted the world of career exploration for high school students? So the the COVID's been a little bit different piece, so we haven't been able to do the in-person uh, career events, but uh, the virtual world has really been catching up and making some vast improvements. So we have been able to connect with the students. How have they taken to learning something like this virtually? They seem to be pretty good with the, with the virtual content and with the different platforms that are out there now. It's making it a little bit more interactive for them. So it's been a, it's been a good piece. Now, did this thing slow down the need for new apprentices in the skilled trades? No, truly, uh, the the skilled trades have have uh, held the same amount of work, if not more, uh, than we've had in the past couple of years. Uh, we're still at the highest numbers of apprentices that we've had. So being able to contact these students has been vital to get them into the apprenticeship programs. Have you been able to contact students post and prior to this uh, to this virtual thing? We, we have, we have, and, and we're going to, I believe, talk about our application process that we're going to do uh, coming up here in the future, but um, it, it has. We have been able to work things out to where we uh, get uh, in touch with the students, for sure. You know, the younger generation are all electronics. They're all thumbs, and they can make all the things on the computer just sing. Uh, is the enthusiasm for working online still positive with them? I think that I think that some areas they lose some enthusiasm, but when they can see that there's a rewarding career at the end of it, 
Um, we've had some really good interest and they do get pumped up about that and uh, stay tuned in for it. Does ha not having them in the field kind of take the air out of the balloon, so to speak? Not being able to do the hands-on piece with them for career exploration probably takes a little bit of enthusiasm uh, out of the piece for the students, but um, they, to be able to still do the career exploration with us virtually uh, is the next best thing. That's the best we can do right now, Ken. I mean, standing next to a bulldozer is pretty exciting. It beats a picture any day. It, it is, and hopefully we can get back to that soon. Uh, talk to me about construction career days. What's a typical year like, and how have you guys adapted because of COVID? So a typical year on construction career days, we would have all of the construction trades in one spot, uh, generally out at our Howell facility, um, where the students could come in and pound nails with the carpenters, do a little bit of welding with the pipe fitters, operate heavy equipment with us. And um, that's just not possible with the COVID this year with the pandemic still going on. So we're gonna do a, a great virtual event for them to where each uh, trade would have their own booth. They can come in, visit, uh, and still get that career exploration piece completed. Any idea when you may start the actual hands-on classes yet? Well, so we, uh, as far as the career exploration, we're hoping that sometime mid-summer, maybe fall, things will clear up enough to where we can, uh, to where we can start that hands-on piece again with the students. Now, who will students have an opportunity to hear from at Construction Days? So at Construction Career Days, we're going to have um, the construction trades there, such as the carpenters, laborers, pipe fitters, all the usual trades. We will actually have a, a good amount of colleges on hand that offer um, uh, construction management programs, as well as our contractors uh, will be there to explain to the students what they would actually encounter in the field with them. Is this a tough sell to get somebody who's young and interested in this, or is this just a natural built-in curiosity to, you know, to weld, to cut, to, to fix a bulldozer, to drive an excavator? I, I think that it, it is kind of a natural piece for them to come out and do. Uh, we've done a lot of outreach over the past 10 years, and I think that students are gravitating back towards the skilled trades. Uh, more than they have in, in past years. We had a little bit of a skills gap going on there. And I, I really think that the uh, students heading back to the skilled trades is, uh, is a good trend. Have the younger people figured out that, hey, I can, I can start this. I don't have to get into a lot of debt. I can come out with a job waiting for me rather than going to college and, you know, maybe hit or miss is going to take me four years, six years, seven years to get a diploma. And then if the job market's tight, I'm not going to be able to find a job. Have they figured it out yet? I think that they have. And I, I think that it's really coming back through the school systems, through the CTE programs themselves, through all the instructors that we talk to that the students realize this is a true uh, earn while you learn model. And uh, that is a great career with, uh, with great benefits at the end of the day. What are you hoping, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of construction days, what are you hoping the students are gonna come away with? So I would hope that the students come away with one or two trades uh, that they would like to specialize in. They're gonna have the contact information so that they can reach back out to that trade get more information in that area 
but more overly, I hope that they have a, a, a great career exploration uh, event uh, where the students might see some things they didn't even know existed out there for career opportunities. You know, funny you bring up, didn't know that they uh, these jobs existed. What happens when a student gets into the program, they say, maybe I want to be a welder, but yet they think or they see something that they're a little more interested in as they progress down the line. They can still go back and learn this and go after what their hearts desire. For sure, for sure. No different than uh, a college student starting out with one major and moving over to another. Uh, the same thing happens in the trades. I, I myself started out as a carpenter and decided that heavy equipment looked pretty neat. So I uh, went that route. Was it hard for you for being a carpenter to get into the heavy equipment repair? Was it, was it a difficult learn? It, it actually was a nice transition, right? I knew how a job site worked. I knew how the industry worked. And um, it was just a, a, another tool in my box to pick up for sure. Now, the operating engineers have an upcoming apprenticeship application period. Uh, when's it start? Is there a time frame? Is there a deadline? Yep. So we're going to do uh, online applications uh, June 7th through June 11th. And uh, they can get all the information and on the applications uh, by going to oe324.org. And that's all they have to do? They, they can do this all online? They can do it all online. And uh, some of the requirements, they'll need a valid Michigan driver's license, uh, high school diploma or a GED, um, work keys testing, uh, which we can get generally through Michigan Works or some of the community colleges. We actually have a hot link on our website that uh, will notify them of where they can get the work keys uh, testing accomplished at. All of those pieces get uploaded with their application. So it's all done. Uh, it's all done online. How quickly can they find out if they were accepted? So everybody that uh, uh, puts an application in a valid application complete uh, moves on to the next piece of the process, which would be an evaluation with us. But they may put an application in in June. And depending on work and the call from the contractors, they could be potentially working the end of August or September. That's right around the corner. It is. Why is being in a skilled trade such a great option for a young person? The skilled trades are a great option because the work is here in Michigan. We need the workers here in Michigan. It's a great career. I can't imagine doing anything more satisfying than, than this career. And uh, the students just need to know that they're real opportunities and they're here. We got about 30 seconds left. Why is being an operating engineer in particular such a great option? The operating engineer, biggest toys in the sandbox, right? Biggest, biggest equipment out there and uh, truly an enjoyable day to operate them. John, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate all the good information. Thank you, Ken. You're welcome. Stay tuned for more of Michigan Construction Career Days in 2021. And of course, stay tuned for more of Building Michigan only on News Talk 760 WJR.
Welcome back to WJR's Building Michigan. I'm Ken Wargolski. Operating Engineers 324 recruits and trains the heavy equipment operators and technicians doing all the heavy construction around the state, but they also have a very strong training center right here in Detroit where they educate the next generation of stationary engineers. This evening, we talked to Mr. Matt Kloss, who heads up OE324's Stationary Education Center. Matt, good to see you again. Great to see you, Ken. Thank you. Let's start at the beginning. Let's do a quick refresher. Uh, stationary engineers, what do they do? So stationary engineers maintain high and low pressure boilers, uh, diesel engines, turbines, generators, pumps, condensers, and compressors. Uh, they monitor various meters, controls, and gauges that are attached to the equipment to make sure they're running properly and make adjustments whenever necessary for proper efficiency. So it sounds to me like there are stationary engineers at work at places that we go to every day, radio stations, hospitals, schools, you name it. What are some of the OE324 stationary engineers working at today? Can I list a few here? Um, in Detroit alone, OE324 has stationary engineers at many facilities, including the TCF Center, the Rensen, Little Caesars Arena, the city and federal buildings, Wayne State University, University of Detroit, Detroit Public Schools, just name a few in the city. So when you walk into a big building, any place around Metro Detroit, if it's comfortably warm in the wintertime or comfortably cool in the summertime, it's a stationary engineer doing all of that. Absolutely. They're in all the big buildings, the hospitals, like you mentioned, um, places you wouldn't even realize that they're at. Uh, for example, the Detroit Zoo, uh, the Detroit Institute of Arts. So they're all over. The Detroit Zoo has an operating engineer on duty? Hey, somebody's got to keep those penguins alive. That's, I did not think of that. That's that's true. So uh, we were talking about a education center in Detroit. Exactly where is it? So the education center here is located at 1550 Howard Street, just a few blocks down from Old Tiger Stadium, right in the heart of Corktown. Um, it's a full training facility. Um, it includes state-of-the-art classrooms, hands-on labs where students can practice what they're learning in real-world scenarios. So actually, you can go into this school and look at a turbine, look at a compressor, look at all the stuff that you need to, to make them run? Absolutely. We offer a, a handful of classes, you know, right down from, I mean, from high-pressure boiler classes, and we even train first aid and CPR. So it's it's a variety of stuff we teach down here. So what's the hardest part? Is it the book learning or is it the hands-on learning? You know, it's, I'm going to go back to the old adage, the book learning is always tough. Uh, the hands-on is the fun stuff. So, um, but our instructors are, you know, they're stationary engineers working in the field right now. So they, we have some of the best instructors in the state of Michigan teaching this stuff. So it, it makes the book part a lot easier. Now, what does someone have to do to become a member of the union? Do you have to become a union member to take classes? No, classes are open to members and non-members down here. Unlike a lot of training programs around the state, um, our classes are affordable. They cost less than, than you'd get at other programs. Um, and our classes aren't just for apprentices either. Our curriculum includes many courses for the experienced station engineer um, to expand their knowledge and learn new equipment and techniques. You've been around for a while, and I'm sure you've talked to your teachers and some of the students are in this. What does what a student who wants to become an operating engineer, a stationary engineer, what do they get out of it? What's the excitement? What's the thrill? The thrill is... It's, it's our whole, our whole uh, our mantra here as far as we build, we maintain. 
So our construction side comes in and builds buildings, then our stationary guys come in and maintain it. Um, it's a lifelong career for a lot of our engineers. They get into a building and they can be there for the rest of their lives and, and maintain that whole, whole complex. Is it difficult to enroll, enroll in a class? It is not. Um, to enroll is pretty simple. You can come down to the Ed Center and enroll. Um, we're looking to get a online enrollment due to COVID, um, but you can always call down to the Ed Center. Um, Kayla, the gal that works here in the office, she'll she'll be able to sign you up in any classes you want. Our, our schedules are online um, on our Facebook page. So if you needed to look uh, look into getting enrolled down here, give us a call. We're always always ready for enrollment. That's for sure. What does it take to be an excellent operating engineer, a stationary engineer? You know, you have to have a good attention to detail for one, um, have a good attitude. And, you know, always have the desire to keep learning. It's, it's the key thing right there, because with the industry always changing, we try to teach cutting edge down here and, and keep people, the desire to keep learning is, is the main thing. Um, so does OE324 offer an apprenticeship in stationary engineering like it does on the construction side? We do, indeed. Um, our open application period will be coming up next month. We don't have a date nailed down yet. Um, but yes, we absolutely do. The uh, application process will be moving online for the first time. Um, like I said, you can check it out on oe324.org or check our Facebook page out because it's always updated on that rather quickly. You said attention to detail is one of the things that really makes a good stationary engineer. Uh, is it just reading the dials or, I mean, do you really have to go through and clean the equipment, replace valves? What specifically do you have to do? All of that, Ken. It's uh, this equipment that we that these operators operate are it's high tech, very expensive equipment. Um, they come through this training program, especially like the apprenticeship. When the apprentices come through, they learn from the ground up, and they get in the into the workplace. For example, LCA, they'll work with the journey person and and get that equipment figured out. I mean, they're making the ice over there at LCA. It's pretty important to keep that at the right temperatures. Um, it's not only reading gauges. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and our instructors here, you know, teach these students that come out of here exactly what equipment they'll be working on. So it's pretty special. And don't forget at LCA, there's ice on top and there's ice in the basement too. Yeah, there sure is. Unbelievable stuff. To become a stationary engineer, is it the sciences that you really have to be good in? Is it math that you have to be good in? Is it mechanical engineering that you have to be good in? Or do you just have to really have a gut for good machinery? No, it's, you know, to be a good, to be a good stationary engineer, your math skills have to be pretty good. Um, a lot of it's, there's a lot of formulas, a lot that goes into temperatures. So it's, it's, it's a precise math-based business, but at the same token, we have the, the school down here that teaches the exact formulas and stuff that you'll be learning out in the field. We got less than a couple of minutes left. How does someone become an apprentice? So you apply. In order to become an apprentice, you apply. An application will be available online. You need to be 17 years old, have a high school diploma or GED, be a U.S. citizen, possess a U.S. Uh, driver's license, a valid, and be able to physically perform the job essential and uh, be able to take work keys. What are the prerequisites? What's the process? Any prerequisite classes needed? No prerequisite classes. No, you just come and apply and... Um, we review your application, um, go through a go through an assessment, and uh, 
you go from there, become an apprentice. In about the 30 seconds we have left, what's the future hold for being an OE324 stationary education center person? So here at the, at the Ed Center, the future is very bright. You know, last year showed stationary engineers are essential workers. You know, they stayed at their posts throughout the pandemic, keeping buildings heating and cool, heated and cooled. Now that things are returning to normal, they're on the forefront of keeping people safe through air quality. You know, these are rewarding lifelong careers with a stationary education center. We're giving new and experienced station engineers alike a place to learn and develop their skills. So, you know, down here, we're, we're a proud part of the revitalization of Detroit and the state of Michigan. And it's looking great downtown. It sure is, exciting. Matt Kloss, who heads up the OE324 Stationary Education Center, Thank you for joining us tonight. Good to have you. Thanks, Ken. Stay tuned for more Building Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Welcome back to WJR's Building Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. I'm Ken Bergolsky. We've been talking a lot tonight about career opportunities and the work being done to educate students and graduates about the opportunities in the skilled trades. Now we're going to talk about the work being done to introduce these possible careers to the community that have traditionally been underserved. For example, in Grand Rapids, Kathy Harris has been working with several trades and other organizations to develop a program called Access for All, a pre-apprenticeship readiness program. And Access for All has been successful for several years in Detroit and helped residents find rewarding and profitable careers in the skilled trades. Now it's expanding throughout the state and helping more communities prepare residents to be successful in skilled trades apprenticeships. And we also have another guest with us tonight, Angelica Velasquez, who is the founder of Grandmas to the Rescue. That sounds like a fascinating title, Angelica. Tell us what what this does. What do you do? Well, the Grandmas to the Rescue does. Uh, I'm starting with this group like uh, in 2017. Uh, we try to break the eye of with the police department and communities. We have on this time to our several cases about the, how they trade to com Hispanic community and then African-American. And there's a way to say, well, we need to educate the police department and community to be together, break the ice. And that's where we started to make a one beautiful event in um, Garfield Park. And we do it like a 1200 people and uh, like a 30 police officers, they attended through the, through the celebration to break the ice and say, this is the community. And if somebody has to stand up to unify, to make like a community coalition, to be in charge of it, and to see exactly what's going on in this city. And sometimes uh, don't put much attention, but that we do, we know exactly what's, what's going on. And, and don't stay right there, don't go any place. With a name like this, we gotta learn more, okay? <laughs> we'll be back with you. Kathy Harris also is uh, here in a Detroiter, and now she spends her time in Grand Rapids. Kathy, tell us a little something about yourself. How did you get this program rolling? Well, I am I am from Grand Rapids, not Detroit. Um, and I met uh, one of the operators engineers a couple of years ago. Um, I have to get a shout out to Joe Shippa. He's been a great friend. Um, but Joe told us about the program in um, Detroit area, the Access for All program. And I, as we had that conversation, I said, you know, that's something that I want to do 
here in Grand Rapids. And I, I want to do a lot of things in Grand Rapids, but I have to narrow it down on a few because I'm only one person wanting to do a whole lot. Um, but saying that, though, with talking with Joe, we learned more about Access for All and said we can do that here in Grand Rapids. And so that's how I got started. He's what been a great partner with planning and everything else. Why have these opportunities, which are great jobs and great careers, why have they been missed by communities in the urban area in Grand Rapids and in, in, in Detroit? Well, I can't answer that question. Um, I, I don't know why it's been missed because it, it baffles me to know that those opportunities are not here in Grand Rapids. But I worked in the factory for years. And so I did not get out as, as much. Um, there was not much exposure to the building trades. I worked in the auto industry. And so I didn't see those things. And then I got more involved with community activities over the years. Um, and we met at, a, at an event. Uh, if I had to met Joe, I wouldn't have known about Access for All. And so with learning and more about the program, it just gave me that incentive to do that here in Grand Rapids. And so um, we're going to make sure that it's here and they know that those trades are out there. There certainly is a need. Do you, would you agree? Oh, definitely is a need. I, I hear that all the time or quite often from other people when you you see people building, you know, putting these buildings up or working on the roads, you don't see that many people of color. Um, and so we're here to try to change that in Grand Rapids. Well, keep up the good work. Now, explain what Access for All is and how does it prepare students for future careers? Access for All is a pre-apprenticeship program um, to help those to learn a trade. Um, there are various trades, but this gives them the opportunity that they would not ordinarily have. Um, those that are underserved or um, underrepresented communities. And I'm not sure how they reached out to them in, in Detroit area, but I'm, I have a plan of reaching out to our community and making sure those that need a second opportunity, um, needing just that hand, and we're willing to extend that hand to them here um, and give them an opportunity. You just don't hear about, you know, you just don't hear about how to become a crane operator. I know Joe's a crane operator. Um, and you don't know, you see the cranes, but you never know how to get started. So we want to help the community learn how to get started. So who's eligible? Um, anyone that's over 18 um, that, that needs that, that, uh, that, that second chance. We're um, going to be reaching out to returning citizens, um, people of color, um, minorities, women, um, just those that would not ordinarily have an opportunity to find out where those opportunities are. So we're gonna reach out to the, the inner city community, those that just willing to go through the process that can hang through those training days, those workshops and everything that needs to happen, whatever it takes to get them to that place, that's what we're gonna do. And for those who are strong enough to hang in there, what are some of the benefits when opportunities like those in the skilled trades find their way into the communities? One of the things is is having um, those decent living wages and being, a, I'm a union member, so we're really, really, um, it's a really important issue for us to have our living wages, to have our benefits. And so we want to make sure that those that come into this program understand that importance, understand why we're doing what we're doing so that when they get that opportunity, they'll appreciate it. Um, but just to have um, a fair chance like everyone else. I mean, there's, you know, we just want to make sure that those that would not know, did not know, um, have the same opportunity like myself. I mean, I had a decent job, but everybody don't know how I got that job. So we want to make sure that we share that information with the rest of the community. Yeah, spread the word. Our, yes. our other guest tonight is Angelica Velasquez, the greatest title for a program, Grandmas to the Rescue. Tell us about <laughs> this, Angelica. 
Well, we're just we are looking and in my side, so I see that's, that's a, a beautiful opportunity to to help with the, you know, exactly what Kathy say about the youth uh, people. We can want to create better uh, opportunities. Uh, we want to create a youth center here in the corridor. We need something like that. Uh, we don't have a space when the students through here, they don't have a where they going to just at least to sit down and talk to make a good relationship with each one to each other. But the Grammar to the Rescue, we have a lot of vision and mission and passion together to to organize this community. We have a in my mind is to hope so God give us opportunity to build some like a 12 apartment to incubate families in disaster. This is our, my, our concern about that. Um, you know, there's a lot of women, they have a, a lot of needed and we are here. We have the second chance to serve through those people. Angelica, we've got less than a minute left. Two quick questions. What are some of the benefits that you teach to help people raise their own food and how can we all get involved? Well, this is a very great question for our, and my side, this is very important because we can create more healthy community. Uh, if they starting to um, grow to vegetables and fruits and home, and um, this is more cheaper and involve the youth, involve the kids to, the, uh, to educate the kids how they can, um, use the time, you know, in, in Michigan, we have a beautiful weather in the summer, but we have a very long winter in the, you know, this is a very, a lot of conflict that just we use like a, a couple months to grow some vegetables. But with the pandemic right now, we teach us to say, hey, what do we have to do? It? Some of the people through here, they don't qualify for nothing. And uh, we have to starting to do something in my side, is to see um, in each home they have to own food, they can start and grow. And we give you like a 20 uh, houses, uh, garden bed seats and everything. And we are, have our books and everything to teach them. And you know what? We found a lot of very professional people in home. They're still doing very great job. <laughs> and I think uh, they are teaching us too but the, the more important is to see how those people, they are so exciting to be in the this uh, opportunity to be in the program, Programmers to the Rescue. And it really is good to grow your own food. The, re the reward that you get at the end is just fabulous. Yes, that is very important. Just what I say, what I'm talking, we create more healthy community. Angela Velasquez, Grandmas to the Rescue. What a great name. Keep up the good work. And Kathy Harris, Access for All, thank you for joining us tonight on Building Michigan. All right. Thank you for having me. Stay healthy, both of you. Thank Stay you. Tuned. Stay tuned for more Building Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR.
Welcome back to WJR's Building Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Ken Morgulski here with you. One topic we have heard a lot about lately is the selection of contractors for municipal projects. To OE324, it's important that contractors be held to a set of criteria that offers benefits to the community and safety to the workers. We welcome Chris Phillips, Operating Engineers 324 Business Representative. Christian, good to have you. Thanks for having us, Ken. You're welcome. And Dan McKernan, an old friend from OE324, the communications director. Good to have you again, Dan. Good to see you too. All right. Chris, let's start with you first. Tell me what makes a responsible contractor. Well, Ken, when a, when a municipality chooses to spend its residents' dollars, tax dollars on a project, they have a fiscal responsibility to spend it wisely in the best interest of the residents. That means selecting responsible contractors. And to your question, a responsible contractor is one who meets and exceeds some pretty reasonable criteria. They have a qualified technical technical program, competency, experience, adequacy of resources, financial and personal, including equipment and satisfactory track record regarding past projects and performance, safety, and other areas. Are there many responsibilities for a responsible contractor in Detroit? Uh, there are a lot of responsible contractors in the city of Detroit. Uh, we have Blaze Construction, Gainga Demolition, Barton Mallow, just to name a few. Uh, these are contractors that meet that criteria, Ken, and are doing great work around the city. Fortunately, anyone can become a responsible contractor by doing the things we talked about. So why are responsible contractors better for the community? Well, the investment into rebuilding Detroit means very little if it doesn't come with investment in Detroiters. A responsible contractor meets or means projects are done right by the workers and the right training, safety, skills, and the right materials. It also means they're offering a pathway into a career and apprenticeship for residents. Dan, this question's for you. How can a city or a municipality pick a responsible contractor? Well, when, whenever a municipality, Detroit, uh, Wayne County, Oakland County, Macomb, any municipality picks a project that they're going to invest tax dollars in, um, they're going to go through a, a set of, of what they expect from, from those who are submitting bids. Um, it's our belief that that should be a pretty comprehensive list of requirements. Uh, a lot of the things Chris mentioned, uh, all of the things Chris mentioned, to be honest, should be considered when we're talking about the tax dollars of residents. Um, they all should be weighted in, in those project bids. Now, sometimes there has been criticism thrown around that responsible contractors mean more expensive projects. Is, is that a fair criticism? Uh, it's not, Ken, and I'll, I'll tell you why. There have been study after study after study that have shown that when you pick the right contractors, responsible contractors who are using the right materials and employing and paying workers the right way, those projects are done on time, they're done in budget, and they're done the first time. When you when you go by the, the lowest, we all know the saying, you get what you pay for. And when the only thing that you're using to decide who works on a project is what that initial um, bid is, what you'll find is that those projects have to be done multiple times. They have to be done with, you know, worker turnover, which has certainly higher labor costs, things like that. So that's why we believe the, the, the stats bear out. Pick responsible contractors, you get responsible projects. 
And like you said, you get what you pay for. What are some of the dangers of picking a contractor who doesn't meet this kind of qualification? Well, you have tax dollars leaving the city or even possibly the state. Um, and you also have a lack of um, opportunities for Detroiters. Uh, projects going over budget or even having to be redone. And then it is costing more in the long run. Yes, it does. Chris, why should an apprentice and a registered apprenticeship in particular be part of the decision-making process? Well, we've all heard the old adage, you give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. You teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. That's exactly what this is. It guarantees that companies wanting to work in city limits will offer Detroiters highly skilled training, lifelong careers, not just temporary jobs. You know, this is a question for the both of you. Um, You've got all the stats to prove this, but what about the process that if a contractor has been in business for a long, long time, there probably is a pretty good chance this person is a responsible contractor. Does that make sense? I'd say it's the likelihood's certainly there. Um, that's not to say that somebody, you know, can't start, a, you know, we, we certainly work with a number of contractors who have started, have, a, you know, been around for less time, but they started with the right ideals. They started by doing things the right way and they're, they're carrying through. We love to see that. We, we love nothing more than to see uh, contractors who are, who are still in those first stages but if they start out doing the right things, they're going to continue to do the right things. Um, and so, really, longevity isn't shouldn't necessarily be a deciding factor. Now, that being said, you're right. The longer they've been around, there's a better chance that they know how it's done. There's a better chance that they know, you know, how things are 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 are, are best practiced. But it's certainly not 100. Christian. Yeah, no, I, everything Dan said, um, and I just add that, uh, you know, anyone that's been around for a long time has realized that you have to invest in your workers, and that's how you make it a long time. What are mm -hmm. the benefits, Chris, of being a registered apprenticeship? Well, you have a, a registered apprenticeship program like the Operating Engineers. We have a standards of learning with the Department of Labor. Uh, these standards specify the number of classroom hours, on-the-job training, and entry guidelines for each respective program. These, uh, these are earn-as-you-learn jobs. Um, students get to make money while they're learning on the job. Uh, it also means they're being paid a fair wage set by federal standards. And these apprenticeships don't lead to jobs. They lead to lifelong careers, sustainable, rewarding careers that last a lifetime and support families and communities. I mean, you paid while you learn. How can you argue with that? You Dan, can't. before we, you can't, right. Dan, before we run out of time, would a responsible bidder ordinance apply to all work in the city, for example? No, that's a misconception. When, when we're talking about this, we're talking about projects that use tax dollars, resident money, and are, are you know city or municipal funded we're not talking about you know the house that's going up down the street from you or you know uh, necessarily a, a private you know uh, development we're, we're talking about tax dollars that are overseen by municipalities christian 30 seconds left the pressure's on give me a quick update on what big projects going on in the city of detroit well, um, they're kind of hard to miss. You have the Gordy Howe Bridge uh, that's going to be really uh, start to be visibly uh, seen through the skyline here this year. Uh, a lot of stuff going up. 
you have the Hudson site. I mean, it's a, a really 83 story, you know, skyscraper, if you will, uh, in the heart of Detroit. And that's just uh, to mention the big ones. You have the Wayne County Correctional Facility being built off of uh, 94 and 75. You have um, uh, work being done over there by the riverfront that's going to connect the Riverwalk with uh, Belle Isle. And we also have the proposal in, $250 million bond proposal, getting rid of blight throughout the city. So it's just going to help out the community big time. But that's just to name a few, Ken. You did a great job. Dan McKernan, Christian Phillips from Operating Engineers, Local 324. Thank you for joining us tonight on Building Michigan. Thanks, Ken. This has been Building Michigan, sponsored by Operating Engineers, Local 324 on News Talk 760 WJR. I'm Ken Rogulski. Thank you for joining us.